Hi, I'm Keith McCullough. Welcome back to another edition of Real Conversations, where it's my pleasure and privilege to welcome Dr. Ben Steele, who is the Director of International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Dr. Steele, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a perfect time, given what you've written most recently. You know, this, the, the world's running on fumes from a monetary policy perspective. You wrote this great piece for PBS. Uh, maybe give people kind of just the, 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 the first volley in terms of how you thought about that. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely unprecedented what global uh, central banks are doing right now. You've got uh, 23 countries around the world representing a quarter of the world economy. Um, using a central bank policy rate of zero or below, absolutely unprecedented. You add on another six countries now, 29 countries representing 60% of global output, and uh, these central banks all have policy rates of 1% or below. So there's very, very little room for maneuver in terms of conventional monetary policy around the world. And, and we've gone to, like, you know, basically, if you're, if you're me, you have to go meeting to meeting at institutional investor A, B, C, state, you know, California, New York, and back again. And you have to explain to them that it's not about conventional anymore. No. It's about the communication tools. And you've written a lot about this and the problems associated with the rhetoric. Can you, can you, can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, if you go back to the beginning of the crisis when we started bumping against the so-called zero bound on interest rates, um, central bankers were, were quite flummoxed. What, what do we yeah. do from here? I mean, quantitative easing was unprecedented. Certainly negative interest rates were unprecedented. So they started paying a lot more emphasis uh, to communications, to what they called forward guidance, basically trying to um, steer investors' expectations about the future, in particular, um, trying to get them to believe that the accommodative policies that were being put in place now that they feared might not be accommodative enough would continue on indefinitely into the future. Mm -hmm. That they thought would help the recovery. But over the last two years, what we've seen is the, the ma world's major central banks going entirely in the other direction, <laughs> trying to shock us. Yeah. You, you had the Swiss, I think, kicking this off. Uh, to, um, uh, to, I guess it was two years ago, saying that um, they would not abandon their uh, peg to the euro. Uh, uh, two days later, they do it, cause uh, chaos in financial markets uh, around the world. More recently, you had uh, the governor of the Bank of Japan saying he was not going to experiment with negative interest rates, turns around, shocks the market with negative interest rates. You have the ECB trying to talk down expectations between meetings, clearly looking to surprise yeah. the market uh, on the upside. So this environment has never been more complicated for yeah. investors because they can no longer count on what monetary policy makers are telling them. They have to figure um, whether they're being screwed with, to be <laughs> quite, quite frank, and, and deliberately, yeah. um, it, as uh, central bankers try to manage expectations and manipulate I mean, I'm, I'm smiling at the same time. I do not think this is funny. I think it's mm -hmm. you know, quite, you know, the, the consequences could be quite dire. You know, of course, after you've cut to zero multiple times, you have unlimited quantitative easing, and then you move towards the qualitative or the communication of it all. Like when overnight index swaps, we show these, you know, in two-year swaps basically started to nosedive on the, on the European rhetoric, and the euro actually right. went up. Right. I mean, this was the, one of the biggest moves this year That's right. where a lot of people in my world, if you're just a macro person alone who's trading currencies, the currency is supposed to go down. 
And he said to everyone he wasn't going to buy corporates. He buys, says, I'm going to buy corporates. Then the euro goes up. So you're saying that they're, they're actually trying to surprise and shock. I think there are two things going on here. One, one has to do with the communication side. Uh, I mean, within the ECB, there are multiple audiences they have to appeal to. Um, they're trying to convince investors on the one hand that they'll quote unquote do what it takes. On the other, they're trying to reassure their primary creditor, Germany, uh, that they're going to be responsible and not go too far. Um, so you often have mixed messages out of the ECB. Uh, but they'll announce a major quantitative easing program, you know, new, new asset purchases. They'll go further into negative rate territory, but then you'll have Draghi turn around and say, well, well we're not going to do anything else for the foreseeable future, and then the, 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 the markets tank again. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, um, I, I, I think the uh, central banks have often lost track of the site that investors are fun- focused on real variables, in yeah. particular real interest rates. And hey, you've got inflation actually ticking up mm-hmm. in the United States right now. So in terms of real yields, the U.S. markets aren't looking that bad right mm-hmm. now. So this means that if the uh, ECB or the Bank of Japan wants to weaken their currencies, um, they've got to move further mm-hmm. into negative rate territory, mer- further into quantitative easing than they had ever planned to do. So when, when, the, when that belief system, though, starts to break down and the, transmi- the transmission mechanism for all intents and purposes, I think we agree on this, was supposed to be the currency. You devalue the currency, the asset prices in that currency go up. Really basic stuff for the person at home to yeah. observe. The institutional investor, by the way, is just starting to figure that out because not everybody invests from a macro perspective. But again, if the belief system breaking down and I try to talk this down or try to shock you, now my currency goes up and my asset prices both in Japan and in Europe, you had over 20% declines in both the DAX and in the Nikkei, you know, then what? You, well, do, do you think that they'll actually be, I guess it's the definition of insanity, will they, will, will they do it again and again and again with their stock markets collapsing? Well, the, the central bankers, in my view, wouldn't have to keep doing it again and again and again if they would just send out a more consistent message. Right. I think they're trying to have it both ways. Remember, the markets are forward-looking for all <laughs> their faults. Um, uh, so if you throw them a bone with negative rates a little bit lower, a little more uh, quantitative easing, and then you turn around and say, well, we're, 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 we're done for now. We're not going to do anything else. You lose all that shock and awe effect entirely. The markets want to know not just what have you done for me lately, but what will you do for me tomorrow right. if this doesn't work? Yeah, and it's a constant back and forth. I mean, in, in behavioral Absolutely. economics, it's like Kahneman proved over and over again with Diversky. I mean, you, it's the rate of change in their decision making. And what's happening now, I mean, this is, I'm curious to get your take on this, um, if only because I wrote about it this morning. But in, in, the, in the span of between basically now and December, Janet Yellen went from hawkish to dovish in, in March and April, right. back to hawkish in May. That's right. And she could potentially go to dovish on a bad job, uh, any bad jobs reports going forward. You could have four changes, rate of change changes, in her messaging in the span of six months. Uh, you, you, you can, and a lot of that is down to the internal political dynamics within the Fed. You think uh, so? Really? Well, Janet Yellen is not a dictator. Um, she's, <laughs> she's a dove. <laughs> I think she might be a dub at heart. You know, you and I were talking before we went on the the camera about uh, the run-up to her appointment. 
and the market's general perception that Larry Summers would be the hawk, Janet Yellen would be the, the dove, and now it seems um, uh, quite the reverse. In Janet Yellen's case, she isn't uh, a dictator um, within the FOMC. She's really first among equals. Mm -hmm. And she has to make sure that she doesn't get too far out in front mm -hmm. of any emerging coalition within the FOMC. Mm -hmm. So sometimes in, in, in order to appear to lead, she has to follow. Now, some, someone said to me on the road yesterday in Kansas City, Missouri, basically said, you know what? It's Fisher. It's Fisher behind the scenes is just basically in her office, in her ear, saying, you got to go. This is your last chance. Let's just go. It's not data dependent. We're going. Uh, Fisher has clearly been the most influential hawk. Um, uh, within the M FOMC, and I, I agree with you that, that, that most of the momentum um, in favor of continuing mm -hmm. uh, to rake, raise uh, rates throughout the year, that's fundamentally being driven by. Because a lot of people, I mean, even, even uh, big Fed critics, I think that I'd qualify as one, but much bigger, more impressive ones than I, like David Einhorn, for example, right. uh, who's got the jelly donut you know, metaphor for Federal Reserve mm -hmm. policy. You know, he's come out and said, look, you know, Janet Yellen's not Ben Bernanke. Um, she's much more um, data dependent. She's more objective. She's going to dot those I's and cross the T's. If you, if you actually watch the rate of change, you know, again, her forecast was wrong. That's the first thing. She raised into a slowdown. But by the time she realized that, she got dovish very quickly. Uh, I mean, bang, bang, That's dovish, right. dovish, in the face of, and you've written about this, so I want to get your take on it, uh, in the face of regional Fed heads speaking hawkish. So how does that work within the among equals camp, or is it just her with Fisher and maybe Dudley that really matters? It's, I think Fisher and Dudley certainly matter more than the, than the others. I think that's absolutely Because the clear. others are just wah, wah, wah. I mean, we're talking about irrelevant. Uh, they basically look at the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker, and they come up with wah, 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 right? And directionally, it'll sound just like that GDP uh, two tracker. Two things I'd say about that. First of all, as, as, uh, as you know, I work at the Council on Foreign Relations, and one of the things we, we do is, um, is public outreach and outreach for the members. We have meetings at the Council quite often, and right. I run the speaker series in economics. If 15 years ago, we had had a, a series dominated by uh, Federal Reserve governors, um, and, and bank presidents, attendance would have been pretty modest. <laughs> pretty um, modest. People didn't want to hear those guys every single <laughs> no. month. There wasn't much uh, info in it. Now it's the, the most popular stuff we can do. They're right? rock stars. They are rock stars, and they're, they're enamored of their, their own voices. Um, now, go, going back to the question of, of uh, Janet Yellen, although Dudley and Fisher are, are, are clearly the, the most Im important voices, uh, even if she doesn't want to raise rates this summer, um, she wants to make sure that there are not going to be dissents mm -hmm. if she can avoid them. Okay. And what do you do if you, if, if you, if you want to try to tamp down uh, the pressure for dissents? You throw them a bone. Mm -hmm. You say you're, you're leaning in the direction of a, a, a rate hike in, in the near future. And then when you get to the meeting, you do your best to push that off into mm -hmm. the, in, into the that's future. What, that's what she's done. I hope I that that's what yeah. she wants. I mean, she used the word probably, which in my vernacular means probable. Uh, not possible. Yeah. There's a difference. It's probable at this point. She said that at Harvard last week. And I said to myself, wow. Like, th what, what do you have to have to eliminate probable? GDP is not going to be reported until after the decision. Yeah. Um, so she can't look wrong on that and then have to revise. But you have two labor reports, obviously, between now and ostensibly going in July, where she could 
you know, push one more time. Yeah. You think, like, what do you well, think? Well, my personal view is that she's clearly beginning to uh, fear the emergence of dissent. Yes. And uh, Bernanke didn't want to see those if he could avoid them as well. Public uh, dissent. Uh, well, dissent with, within the FOMC yeah. in terms of the votes yeah. at the actual right. meetings. Um, Bernanke sort of ushered in this era of um, uh, rock stars among Federal Reserve Bank uh, presidents <laughs> where, where they're shooting off their mouths uh, uh, every two minutes. Uh, and, and now I think the ethos is, well, you know, let them do this. Uh, let them blow off steam in, in public, but when we get uh, behind closed doors for the, the, the rate meetings, we got to make sure that we're all in this uh, together. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means that if the balance of power is shifting slowly towards the hawks within the FOMC, then Janet Yellen has to adjust her rhetoric. Yep. Um, if not her actual votes See, in order seems, to avoid To the me, that, that, that is the epicenter of the politicization of the Fed. I mean, if it's not a uniquely data-dependent path, and again, her change in labor market conditions index, which is her preferred data, and right. she is a labor economist, yeah. has slowed for four consecutive months. This hasn't happened before. It is actually untruthful for her to say at this point that the labor market is improving in rate of change terms. So if she's making this decision because she doesn't want to have the about-face moment where there's a disagreement amongst Fed members, and those who disagree with her basically disagree because they got the wrong forecast. I mean, that's another part of this, too. I mean, Well, some of these guys have been all over the map. Oh, my God. Years, I mean, so. even the Atlanta Fed tracker, the intra-quarter revision mm -hmm. was 240 basis points. They started last quarter at like 2.8% and ended up at a half a percent. I mean, we're all over the place. And I wonder, like, at what point the data wins over the... Um, the politics. Well, I, I did a piece on this in the Wall Street Journal a, a, a few years ago. If you look at the whole strategy of forward guidance, trying to tell the markets what you're going to do right. in the far future, one year, two years, three years down the road, the only way this really works is if the Fed has a better handle on what the economy is going to do exactly. than the rest They're of accurate. it. And if you look at the Fed's forecasting record, going back 30 years, it is on average worse than the blue chip forecast. And this isn't surprising. This is not a criticism of the Fed. They don't have private data. Right. They're working with pretty sophisticated models. But uh, hey, in the markets, people have a strong financial incentive to get it right. And that, that counts for a lot, yeah. too. Now, if the Fed doesn't actually know what's going to happen in the future any better than we do, then one of two things can go wrong. First, the economy doesn't evolve as the Fed expects, but they stick with their forward guidance in order not to lose credibility, and then the policy is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing they could do is change policy, throw away the forward guidance, and then their credibility is shot. Mm -hmm. Nobody listens to their forward guidance anymore. Mm -hmm. But this is a fundamental problem with this particular communication strategy. Also, with regard to... Um, Yellen's determination, which has been typical with the, within the Fed, um, going back generations, to avoid dissent yep. in the actual votes, that culture is not the same in different mm -hmm. central banks. Um, the most recent um, uh, uh, vote for negative interest rates at the BOJ, for example, that was a five to four split. Yep. Uh, the Bank of England um, typically has uh, vocal dissents, mm -hmm. but since we haven't traditionally had that here in the United States, 
it's really viewed as something that that needs to be avoided. Well, that's also, I mean, and you're obviously one, your, your most recent book, The Battle of Bretton Woods, which um, I want to definitely get, I want to make sure that people read that book. I mean, when you go back to where this all started before Bretton Woods, and you go to the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, and you looked at the world from a unilateral policy-making perspective, BOE, Fed, back and forth, et cetera, you know, how problematic is it that you have nothing that resembles uh, unilateral action around the world, and that you have almost like I call it the Game of Thrones or the Game of Slowing, where everybody's in a mutually assured game of destruction for their currency. Well, you, you certainly do have one dominant actor on on the on the international stage, and and that is the Federal Reserve, right. um, and its its powers are way in excess of those um, it would have if its weight were only in proportion to uh, the U.S. contribution to global output. Um, uh, um, The U.S. dollar represents nearly two-thirds of global foreign exchange reserves, and that gives the Fed uh, enormous power. I had written a piece in Foreign Affairs two years ago arguing that um, they are so influential if you go back to Ben Bernanke's taper tantrum speech in May of 2013, I would argue that Yanukovych would still be in power in Ukraine today had he never made that speech. What ha- the, which sovereign bond market around the world was hardest hit yeah. by Ben Bernanke's taper talk? Ukraine. And they could yeah. no, longer, lo- lo- no longer roll over their, um, uh, their international debt. They took a bailout from the Russians. The Ukrainians took to the streets, and the rest is history. But the Fed didn't actually start to taper until... 2014. That's how influential it is. And a lot of that, um, interestingly enough, does go back to Bretton Woods. Um, At Bretton Woods in 1944, um, FDR's treasury was determined to make the U.S. dollar the unrivaled international currency. Mm -hmm. And they used some rather uh, remarkable uh, ruses at the conference itself in order to get the U.S. dollar declared the equivalent of gold, the only currency in the world that would be the equi- treated as the equivalent of gold for the purposes of the operations mm-hmm. of the and, international and, monetary and fund. Its it, it certainly achieved its goal. If, if there hadn't been a Bretton Woods, of course, the dollar would still have been very important. But this gave countries around the world enormous impetus to hold U.S. dollars that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And it also allowed, you know, as you know, it also gave uh, the U.S. You know, world power uh, that extended to military power and power over countries that couldn't service their debts in their own currency. Well, that, that was actually part of the yeah, agenda, right. as I talk about in the, the book. The, the U.S. wasn't simply trying to stabilize the global monetary system um, uh, out of um, uh, uh, some sort of belief that that was its um, uh, natural role um, in the world. There was a harsh geopolitical agenda there. Um, the FDR administration was convinced that after the war, unless they did something, things were going to go back to quote-unquote normal, which for them meant the late 19th century with Britain controlling a quarter of the world's, world's surface and population through the British Empire. And they actually used uh, the negotiation of the Bretton Woods Agreement and uh, uh, um, interwar and, and post-war yep. financial assistance to Britain in order to force liquidation of the British Empire and to eliminate um, a, a competitor for uh, international economic supremacy. It was brilliant. I mean, brilliant <laughs> tactics. Uh, only not outdone in brilliance, I'd say, in terms of its cleverness. Ben Bernanke, 60 years later, 
60 years later, Ben Bernanke gets away with not mentioning the U.S. dollar one time while he's devaluing it to a 40-year low. Well, as you, as you know, it's considered bad, bad form to acknowledge that the Federal Reserve has anything whatsoever to do with the U.S. dollar. Uh, the, the proper response a Fed chairman is supposed to give if he's asked about the dollar is that the dollar is the responsibility of the U.S. Treasury. <laughs> oh, geez. This, I, I can get into kidding? this. I mean, and at the end of the day, then, but at least, and I think this is Einhorn's point, and I'd agree with it as well. I mean, at least Janet Yellen is attempting to, I mean, she, I, she she appears to be honest, you know, having more forthcoming, having an inaccurate forecast or being politicized. I get it. A lot of people in life have both. But if you look at where she is in terms of discussing the dollar, you can look at side by side Fed minutes, hers versus his uh, or in speeches. She mentions the dollar all the time, but she actually mentions it as a negative thing. How how impactful do you think Wall Street is on her or the massive lobby that is anti-dollar? Whether it be the entire resource community, um, the, the entire you know, uh, city of Chicago or anything in the Midwest that's anchored on commodity pricing, you know, how, how tethered is she to the political lobby against the dollar, whereas a lot of people in this country would argue that the dollar has actually been one of the best things that America's ever had? Well, there is so much pressure on her to talk about the dollar because of the, the upward yeah. pressure she, on, the, at on, least, on, on the dollar. Um, and to, to, to some, some extent, uh, um, she's helping to tamp it down uh, by speaking rather than um, uh, avoiding it. Mm-hmm. Um, also, is, but just broadly speaking, the, the Fed has been more open about speaking about things going on in the world outside mm-hmm. our borders, in particular uh, uh, China. And um, uh, these things all have a significant impact on exchange rates. Mm -hmm. And although the level of our currency um, clearly matters much less for the performance of a domestic economy than for most countries Mm -hmm. around the world, it's still quite consequential. And the level of the dollar can make an enormous difference as to whether the Fed feels it has to raise uh, rates or feels that it needs to avoid raising rates because a strong dollar is doing its work for it. Do you think that they'll raise rates by July, And number one? And number two, if you do, do you think that's a mistake? I, I, I think it's going to be a pretty darn close call. Um, I, if you, you make me put my money down now, I, I say they wait until um, after the summer. Um, if Janet Yellen can get through July without having to raise rates. She doesn't have to deal with it in, in August. I really feel her fundamental preference is to, to yeah. you know, let this ride for, for, for a while. Um, the reason I don't want to see a rate hike now is that a lot can go wrong in the world economy Oof. between now and the end of the year. Where we start, we haven't talked about China, we haven't talked about the Eurozone, and then geopolitically, you've got disasters in the, in the, in the Middle East. Where do you even start yep. there? You've got North Korea. A heck of a lot can go wrong. And the, the, we, we talked about some political problems that the Fed has. Well, one is that once the Fed got away from the, the, the zero lower bound, you knew that there was no way in hell that they were going to go back there. Because that would be to ad, ad, admit 
having been fundamentally wrong, mm -hmm. and it would obviously stoke uh, enormous uh, anger on the on the right in Washington and uh, attacks at um, uh, committee hearings again. They just don't want to go there. They want to be above zero, yeah. um, and if the the economic news tells them that they made a mistake in raising rates, they're going to fight it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would have rathered that they had stayed at zero um, uh, back into December yeah. because I don't think the, the risks of a massive inflationary uh, outburst are, are, are imminent. Oh, I agree with you. So I, I would pref prefer they sit back and let's wait to see Because it's really like we do, and frequently I'll find somebody who agrees with me on this. I mean, if you thought that it was a policy mistake and that it would have the knock-on effects, in other words, dollar up, deflations, dominoes, right. worldwide, you can people can point fingers at China, they can point fingers at their eyes, their nose, their toes, whatever, you know, high-yield high debt, everything that was priced in dollars from a risk perspective started to deflate. It was yeah. effectively the only time in my career, I guess it wouldn't have to be my career, you could be probably 40 or 50 years into this and have never seen the Federal Reserve raise rates into a slowdown. That's a mistake. Right. Yeah. So yeah. where I'm from, like my dad would say, you can make a mistake once, my son, but you do the same thing twice. <laughs> you know, we're going to have a little discussion out in the backyard mm -hmm. about this. And that wouldn't that be what that could be? You're saying that the, the, the risk is that it's, she makes a second mistake two times in a row. To go back to the beginning of our discussion when we were talking about communications and forward guidance, one reason, I think, important reason I think they moved in December was that they had been telling us for years that 2015 right. was going to be the year that they raised. It's rates. a political decision. And they really didn't want to exit 2015 without having validated yeah. Uh, their previous guidance to show that, yes, they really did know what they were going to do. In yeah. other words, that the state of the world would evolve just as they had um, laid it out uh, for us. And, and I think that's problematic. Uh, that's why I wish these guys would stop being <laughs> rock stars. Yeah. Uh, uh, be, be a little quiet. Yeah. Um, uh, be more data dependent. Be more honest about what we don't know, um, and avoid going into a situation where you feel you can't retreat from. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, to say, okay, we're 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 off zero now, and we're never going back there uh, again, mm -hmm. uh, because the the world's not interested in where we want to be. Mm -hmm. um, it's got its own dynamic. Um, and uh, we're not going to be uh, a, a, an island of um, uh, growth if um, uh, China tanks, if the Eurozone starts falling apart. Um, these are things that we have to factor into our decision making. Yeah, I think there's a lot of humility in that. I don't hear it that often. We don't know, and the world's going to go where it's going to go, and you have to play the game that's in front yeah. of you, not the one that you would ideally want. And that's... Um, that's a breath of fresh air. So have been your comments. You know, I'm all for, again, this kind of you know, objectivity and the truth. So thanks for, uh, for being a nice beacon uh, of that. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, he is, again, Dr. Ben Steele. You can find him. He's on Twitter. Actually, he's some, one of the funnier guys on Twitter that we find. There's his handle right there. You can see it. Uh, you can also find his book here. We talked about it, The Battle uh, at Bretton Woods. And also, again, back and forth, you can ping me on Twitter if you have any questions about our real conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Hedgeye's Real Conversations. If you enjoyed this interview, we encourage you to subscribe to Hedgeye Podcasts for automatic downloads of future interviews with top market 
and economic thought leaders. You can also visit hedgeye.com for additional content. There you can learn more about our financial research firm's comprehensive market research products and complimentary videos and analysis. The proceeding has been presented for informational purposes only, and none of the information contained herein constitutes a solicitation, offer, opinion, or recommendation by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guest speakers to buy or sell any security or to provide legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice regarding the profitability or suitability of any security or investment. Opinions and analysis are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can and may go up or down based on any number of factors. Consult your financial professional before investing.